The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. I'm here today to announce the appointment of a special counsel. Charging the president with a crime was not an option. We first went through Russia, Russia, Russia. It was all bull****. <laughs> we then went through the Mueller report. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective. From D.C.'s top names. While higher interest rates, slower growth, and softer labor market conditions will bring down inflation. They will also bring some pain. People were pretty, you know, in shock by those comments. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. There is another. Welcome to the fastest hour in politics with another special counsel announced by the Department of Justice to investigate Donald Trump, the documents of Mar-a-Lago, the effort to overturn the 20 election. Will it be different this time? We talk with two experts, Rebecca Royfe of New York Law School, former district attorney for New York County and former Watergate prosecutor Nick Ackerman. Later, FTX, SBF and the ABCs of the crypto crisis in a special conversation with Bloomberg's Joe Weisenthal, columnist and host of the Odd Lots podcast. Looking forward to it. I'd call it a Friday news dump, but it happened around lunchtime. Does that, does that count when it's at noon? Well, it's two-something in the afternoon. Attorney General Merrick Garland in a hastily scheduled announcement. Here he is. I'm here today to announce the appointment of a special counsel in connection with two ongoing criminal investigations that have received significant public attention. Uh-huh. DJT, Donald J. Trump. Garland uh, determined that it was in the public interest here for, yes, another special counsel to oversee criminal investigations related to Trump, deciding whether to bring charges, and as he indicated, timing is everything. Listen again. Based on recent developments, including the former president's announcement that he is a candidate for president in the next election, and the sitting president's stated intention to be a candidate as well, I have concluded that it is in the public interest to appoint a special counsel. There you have it. So, uh... John, or Jack, as you will hear him referred to, Smith, the new special counsel under the order signed today since uh, 2018. He has served as chief prosecutor for the special court in The Hague, charged with investigating, adjudicating war crimes in Kosovo. He is a former acting U.S. attorney. Uh, this is going to be something. And we start our conversation to get a sense of what this means and what we can expect, having, of course, gone through the Mueller probe, already had a special counsel with this same now former president. Rebecca Royfe joins us, professor of law at New York Law School, former assistant district attorney for New York County. Rebecca, it's really great to have you back. I have some really pretty straightforward and simple questions for you to start with. And, and to begin with, why announce a special counsel? People watched what happened last time. Uh, and and remember back to Ken Starr, they're not used to seeing these uh, lead to a lot. Why now? 
First of all, thanks for having me. And yeah, you know, I think that the purpose here is to try to create a separation between the politically appointed attorney general and this highly sensitive, highly charged investigation into the former president. You raise a good question into, well, you know, how effective is that separation actually? Will people really look at this and think this is an independent investigation? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think Attorney General Garland has to hope so. And I think there are some set of people who will always assume that any investigation into the former president is politically motivated, as he has already and will no doubt continue to suggest. But hopefully there are some people who will view this as a uh, sign that this further stage of the investigation is being conducted by somebody who is a career prosecutor and really doesn't yeah. have a uh, course in the race and in that way can act as a more independent um, and hopefully more legitimate source of this investigation. And if if it ends up happening, prosecution. To be clear, for some of our listeners probably hearing about this as they're you know coming out of work or or just beginning to pay attention here, uh, this will this will bring oversight to this special counsel of of the two investigations: the January sixth insurrection at the Capitol, uh, including any role that Trump may have played, as well as the documents case, the president's handling of classified documents after he left office. So those are the two cases. Well, does that mean that Merrick Garland will not be connected to them? Will, will there be a, a firewall between the special counsel and the attorney general? I think a firewall is an exaggeration. The okay. special counsel is is really embedded um, within the Department of Justice, but there are levels of separation that make it such that this investigation is insulated from direct control by the attorney general. OK, got it. Now, what do you know about Jack Smith, the investigator? You mentioned we have a serious contender here, a life, a lifetime prosecutor, an experienced prosecutor. But, you know, my goodness, this this sounds like deep experience when we're talking about war crimes in Kosovo, not not the, the typical candidate for such a role. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think it's interesting. First of all, I think one of his strengths is that um, people don't know much about him. He has a kind of anonymity and that makes mm. it. Um, more likely that he will be seen as a, you know, kind of a career prosecutor who's just doing his job rather than somebody who has any political uh, in connections or investment in the outcome of the case. So I think that's probably mm -hmm. why they chose him. As you said, he has a lot of experience. And I think that that's you know, uh, important and both for his, you know, projecting his reputation and also for actually doing this job and the experience in the international criminal court is important. Of course, he's looked into, you know, war crimes. He's looked into um, investigate, likely investigated heads of state. And so he has some experience with, uh, you know, how sensitive these kinds of issues are and can be. He helped to convict the former governor of Virginia, Bob McDonald. He's not a stranger uh, to political corruption, if if I can uh, call it that. But, you know, it's interesting, Rebecca, a lot of people thought, geez, after the midterms, Merrick Garland comes out with an indictment following the, uh, the the documents case. Is this what's happening instead of that? He made this decision instead of to announce an indictment today to appoint a special counsel and create the distance. Is that a fair way of putting I it? You know, I don't think that he has decided that an indictment is necessarily um, the way to go. I don't think that I, I think if you're you know, if you're handing something over to a special counsel, I think it's because 
there are you seriously think an indictment might be warranted. Okay. And, you know, I, 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 I don't imagine that he would have handed this over to Jack Smith thinking to himself, yeah, Jack Smith will wind up this case and do nothing. So I think it's reasonable right. to conclude that the attorney general thinks that there are, um, you know, some serious criminal conduct and potential charges that are warranted. But I, I, I doubt that he has reached a conclusion um, because, you know, he's relying on Jack Smith for his judgment in that regard. I wonder, does this slow? He mentioned, you know, this will help agents continue their work. Will it slow things down as this uh, architecture is put in place or does it accelerate the investigations that are already running? You know, that's a great question. I don't really think it will slow things down much. Uh, you know, obviously, the as he explained in the press conference, some of the investigators who've been working on this case for a long time will continue on and they can, can create continuity. So all that really needs to happen is that uh, the new special counsel needs to be briefed on everything that's going on. But that really can happen at the same time as they're progressing. So my guess is if it slows things down, it's really not by a significant amount. And, um, you know, it can proceed pretty much on pace. I want to bring people back uh, not very long to the former special counsel, Robert Mueller, as he was announcing the results the Mueller report had finally concluded. Listen. And as set forth in the report after that investigation, if we had had confidence that the president clearly did not commit a crime, we would have said so. We did not, however, make a determination as to whether the president did commit a crime. That day let down a lot of people who were hoping that uh, that this would lead to an indictment or some sort of criminal charge. Uh, He mentioned at that time that because it was outside the scope of his uh, of his authority, that he would not be the one to bring charges. Is that going to happen again? Does this have to go back to the DOJ, back to the attorney general for that determination? No, this is entirely different because now Donald Trump is no longer president. So what happened there was that um, the the special counsel, special counsel Mueller had no had no power, at least interpreted his role as having no power to indict because you cannot, Mm -hmm. at least in his interpretation, indict a sitting president. Mm -hmm. And that's why he didn't come to any conclusion, because he figured, well, you know, people want to know the facts and the and you you can charge him when he gets out of office. Exactly. The proper way of holding him responsible is impeachment. And then once he's out of office, a set of prosecutors can proceed if they want to proceed. But of course, things are different right now, because even if president, even if the former president is 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 a candidate, he has announced his candidacy and his campaign. He's not the president. And so there is no barrier to uh, indicting him here. And so it's well within the job description of the special counsel to determine that charges are necessary and to bring those charges through a grand jury. So So uh, I don't think we would end up seeing that again. So the talk about the timing of Donald Trump's campaign announcement this week was that, you know, he thinks he's bringing himself some protections potentially by doing this legal protections means nothing in this case. Right. I mean, it, it means nothing. It, it, you know, it, it certainly has um, political meaning and it certainly makes right. the job of the special counsel harder. But in terms of its ultimate effect on whether or, you know, on the decision whether to charge, it doesn't it doesn't bear on that. We're learning a lot as we uh, as we do this all over again. Do you have a gut check that that this leads to something meaningful? And if it does in the throes of a presidential campaign? 
you know, I, I really don't know. I, it's hard to read the tea leaves. I would say that we what we can conclude is that Attorney General Garland thinks that there is at least substantial evidence of criminal conduct here and that it's worth yeah. an independent person taking a look at that. Two separate cases mean two separate results, or is this all kind of be folded into one massive investigation? My guess is it's it's going to be one investigation, although it is two distinct pieces of that right. investigation. So how that proceeds, I'm not entirely sure either. We have a lot to learn yet. I hope you're going to come back and, and walk us through it, Rebecca. It's very uh, great to have you back. Very helpful to hear your insights. Rebecca Royfe, professor of law at New York Law School, has been very helpful to us as we've worked our way through a legally challenged existence here for Donald Trump, the former assistant DA for New York County, and up next, former assistant U.S. attorney and former Watergate prosecutor Nick Ackerman. He's been there. Does it go that far again? We'll find out coming up on the Fastest Hour in Politics with breaking news on a Friday. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Breaking news now as we learn that Elizabeth Holmes is sentenced to 11 years for Theranos fraud. The headline just crossing the terminal now ordered to spend more than 11 years in prison. Of course, this is a pregnant Elizabeth Holmes for fraudulently building her blood testing startup Theranos into a $9 billion company that collapsed in scandal. We've been waiting for this uh, all day. The sentence imposed by U.S. District Judge uh, Edward Davila. This came out of San Jose, California. And a lot closer to the 15-year term that prosecutors asked than what Holmes' lawyers saw. They were looking for either home detention or 18 months in prison at most. We are going to go straight now to Bloomberg's June Grasso, the host of Bloomberg Law, who is with us in the clutch. June, it's great to have you with us. you surprised by this number? I am surprised, actually, Joe. I mean, as you say, the prosecution asked for 15 years. Holmes made the ridiculous request for 18 months home detention, but the U.S. probation office asked for nine years. So it's very close to what the prosecution asked for and more than yeah. the probation office asked for. So I think it, it is, it's a tough sentence. And I think, you know, sentence is not only punishment, but it's deterrence. And the judge is sending a message and examples to the world of startups. What happens to a pregnant 38-year-old woman facing a sentence like this? How does uh, law enforcement handle this? Well, first of all, I think the judge, I'm sure, I don't know what's happened at this point, but the judge, I'm sure, is going to let her remain on bail until she has her child. And knowing the amount of litigation that that she has been doing in this case, I think that'll be years before she actually goes to prison because she's going to appeal the sentence. There are other appeals. I mean, she has, her team has litigated every single thing in this trial that's possible to litigate. She, um, she ha- and, you know, it's curious. I mean, you can't really, a lot of people thought, well, the judge might give her a little time off because she has an, a, a toddler at home and she's mm-hmm. pregnant again. Other people said it's her choice to get pregnant and the judge can't really take that into consideration. So there's sort of a, a split on that. But I have to tell you that yeah. in the letters that, that uh, were sent, her, her, um, her, uh, how should I say, her, her 
better half, her boyfriend, or yes, right. uh, sent sent uh, you know a letter with all kinds of colored pictures of of her and him and the baby and and, and all this. And um, there was a to be a little tabloidy. Do you want to be a little tabloidy for me? Why not? <laughs> um, Okay, so the the U.S. Probation Office, which there's also a question of how much she's going to pay. The prosecution asked for eight hundred thousand. The probation office asked for five hundred fifty thousand, which is supposedly more than she had. Mm-hmm. But they intimated, Alma said that she's hiding some assets and that there are family members, i.e., her boyfriend, who is the heir to a hotel fortune, that are trying they're trying to avoid subjecting those assets. To the judgment of the court, so there was a sort of a, a little bit of a tabloidy element of it here. And then, then uh, she came back. Her lawyers came back and said, "Are you saying that she has to marry him?" It, it gets very, very uh, tabloidy. Is the best yeah, that I can right. have. Billy Evans goes as partner. Uh, from what I'm okay, seeing here, by the sorry, way, I'll, no, I'll try to remember that myself. Uh, if you're just joining us, we do have breaking news on uh, this Elizabeth Holmes sentence. It is just out, and it's quite uh, more severe than a lot of people expected here. Uh, when we're talking about this going ahead as, as you know, a criminal punishment, June, I just wonder how much of this is an example to Silicon Valley, for instance. You know, there was an idea here that the judge wanted to make an example out of her, even as she said she was devastated by her failings. She said she's here to stand and take responsibility for Theranos. It was her life's work. It didn't seem to make a difference. Well, you know, the the thing that the judge is thinking about is the hundreds of millions of dollars that she built investors out of. And yes, it is it is deterrence to say to, you know, to give her this tough sentence. And this is, is really a tough sentence to give her this sentence and to warn other people who are involved in startups to, you know, to not to embellish, to tell the truth as they're, as they're trying to get investors. I mean, she told all these things. I mean, she did some, she did some wild things. I mean, she, on her letterhead, took letterhead from Walgreens and Rite Aid and fake things. I mean, really a lot of things were done. And it's easy to look back now and say, oh, she's a nice woman who has a child and another coming. But you have to remember what she did in building up that blood testing startup into this $9 billion company that collapsed in scandal. And, you know, it was un realistic to think that she was going to get home detention for that. I mean, the judge would not be sending the right signal. And I, I think what will be interesting, too, is to see. Now, remember, her uh, former boyfriend, um, Sonny Balwani, is, has also been convicted. And it'll be interesting to see how much the judge gives to him, how it yeah. compares to this. He's maybe still he, got to uh... give her a little bit of a break because she was maybe he wanted to give her 15 years and he gave her less. But, you know, I think this is going to be caught up in so many appeals and so many different kinds, any kind of motion she can make. She has the money to spend on litigators making those motions. June, the judge asked, and I'll leave you with this, a couple of important questions as the sentence was delivered. Was there a loss of a moral compass here? Was it the intoxication of fame? What do you think? I think it was probably a little bit of both, but mostly a loss of a moral compass. I mean, some of the things she did were just just something that 
an average person, when you're one-to-one with someone, you couldn't do. And you, if you listen to some of the, especially in the Belwani trial, they brought in a lot of the investors and some people who were sick and were fooled by this machine. And it really was tragic what she did. It was more than just a company that failed. I mean, she hurt people. And I think she lost, she just lost her moral compass. June, thanks for jumping on. I'm sure uh, you're going to have a lot more to say about this. The host of Bloomberg Law, June Grasso, with us uh, just as the news breaks here. 11 years. Uh, Pretty remarkable uh, to consider here in the Elizabeth Holmes case. We'll see, obviously, how this pans out. We'll have a lot more for you uh, over the course of the evening here on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. Our other big story today came only hours before that sentencing. And that was the announcement of a special counsel by the Department of Justice, Attorney General Merrick Garland, uh, coming forth with very little warning today in a news briefing. I won't call it a news conference because I don't believe there were any uh, questions answered uh, that has kept us moving through this hour in a great conversation with Rebecca Royfe that we turn now uh, for help with Nick Ackerman, the former Watergate prosecutor, former assistant U.S. attorney, Uh, in the Southern District of New York, is with us now. Uh, It's great to have you with us here, Nick. I appreciate the time. When you hear the term special counsel, it almost makes you break out in a sweat when you're used to these uh, at this point in Washington. They've become a lot more common than they were around the time of Watergate. Well, I mean, Archibald Cox was really the first special prosecutor to be appointed in a long time. I mean, I don't really think there was much precedent uh, before that, for appointing a special counsel or special prosecutor. Well, so where do you think we're going here? Um, we've got oh, two I, different I cases. So. Think, Will they both yeah. uh, be investigated and and resolved simultaneously? I, I think they're going to take their course as to, I'm not sure it's going to be simultaneous, but clearly Merrick Garland uh, believed that there was an appearance of a conflict of interest in the sense that He's beholden to um, President Biden. That's his boss. Um, Donald Trump is running against his boss. And so I think what he really did was put the charging decision in the hands of somebody who is completely independent and independent of him um, and the department. And so um, what he's done is essentially provided total independence to this person. Uh, to make that decision, which I think was probably the right thing to do. Um, But it also shows the seriousness of both of these investigations. I mean, if Garland thought that neither of these investigations amounted to anything, he wouldn't bother to do this. Hmm. So if I were Donald Trump, this is not a positive fact. And I also might add that this is not going to slow down these investigations. Um, This is pretty analogous to what I experienced when uh, I was with Archibald Cox. He was fired. Uh, The staff, uh, all the assistant special prosecutors hung in there. And Leon Jaworski came in, and we never lost a beat. I mean, (laughs) he just came in. He was briefed by all of us. He read the grand jury testimony were appropriate. He made the decisions. I don't think we lost any time whatsoever, and I think that is exactly what's happening here. So that's really important, uh, actually. We were talking about that, whether this would slow or potentially accelerate uh, the pace of these two cases and how long it takes to build the infrastructure of a special counsel's office. Well, I don't think there's going to be much infrastructure. Doesn't sound like it. No, no. When Jaworski came in, 
he didn't bring one single person with him. He kept the entire staff and everybody just kept doing what they're doing. And I would imagine that's pretty much what's going to happen here. They're not going to start investigating this from scratch. I mean, I think Merrick Garland made it pretty clear uh, that he's going to take over what is there, that the people who are running these investigations know what they're doing. Uh, They're all independent. Um, And uh, simply the special counsel here is going to be charged with ultimately making the charging decision. That's the key here. This is very limited. This is not like even, um, you know, the Mueller investigation. I mean, this is something where he's stepping in to ultimately make the decision, yay or nay, as to indicting on either or both of these cases. Well, with that said, a lot of this has been made public, right? We've been hearing about the documents case in Mar-a-Lago now for uh, a couple of months with a lot of leaks. We've been hearing about, obviously, January 6th in excruciating detail through the January 6th committee, and I realize DOJ has had its own track on that. But with what you've seen and based on your experience with cases like this, I can't ask many people a question like this on the planet. Is there enough evidence to convict? Um, It certainly seems like there is. I mean, at least on the January 6th, it certainly seems like, based on what the the January 6th committee has done, uh, they have presented plenty of evidence, um, firsthand evidence of Trump's knowledge and intent uh, the emails that have come out that, um, for example, that Judge Carter released in, in California against John Eastman, um, I think there's evidence there. You've got to look at the whole picture, though, and, and yeah. that is what we don't have at this point. I mean, the Department of Justice has a lot more information than we do. People have been put before the grand jury. Uh, they've got two cases that are extremely significant, the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, where you've got three cooperating witnesses with the Oath Keepers. You've got two cooperating witnesses with the Proud Boys. We don't know what they're telling the department. We don't know what they're saying about, for example, Roger Stone, who was on the scene on January 5th with both the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and could be the connection to Donald Trump. We just don't know. Um, And I don't think we're going to find out until unless there's an indictment. This is incredible. Nick, I mean, you appreciate the politics at hand here. This is all going to resolve in the middle of a presidential campaign. How how are we going to get through that? Well, uh, it's just going to happen. I mean, how does the Department of Justice get through that to maintain credibility? I mean, this is going to be the the most divisive moment potentially in our history. Well, but that's that's all the more reason to have somebody uh, who's if they're going to pull the trigger, it should be somebody who's independent that makes the decision. And it's not somebody who is, in a sense, uh, subservient to uh, the president of the United States who's running against Donald Trump. I mean, that's, that's the key here. Wow. So you say good call? Um, yes, I think this was the right thing to do. Um, it, it's sort of a, a hybrid on this whole special counsel idea um, with the notion it's not somebody who's coming in to start an investigation from scratch. He's coming in basically to make a decision. He's going to be overseeing this and he will ultimately be the person to either pull the trigger or not. And, um, you know, there's a lot of other stuff going on, including this investigation in Georgia that also right. uh, could have an impact on the prosecutorial decision here with respect to the January 6th material. I have to set up a weekly conversation with you. I hope you're all right with that. Uh, That's great. not a problem. I'm around. Well, listen, it's an honor to have you. Nick Ackerman, former Watergate prosecutor. Thank you, Nick, for being here. Former assistant U.S. attorney, Southern District of New York. 
voices of experience you hear on this program that you're not going to hear anywhere else. What a week it was for crypto. This is what I thought we'd be leading with today until we heard about uh, the announcement from Merrick Garland. Now a CFTC commissioner is urging whistleblowers in the crypto industry to come forward in the aftermath of FTX, the implosion of FTX, saying tipsters have previously received millions of dollars for their help. Now, we haven't touched this story because it's been such a crazy week with midterms, the Trump announcement in our fastest hour in politics here. But that changes right now because, of course, this bleeds over into politics. Right. SBF was a big donor, but that also involves potential regulatory changes here in Washington, not to mention the overall freak out in the markets that have come from this. And that's why we want to talk to our friend Joe Weisenthal, the co-host of Bloomberg's Odd Lots podcast. The Stalwart is back with us now. Hey, Joe. Thank you for having me. As this FTX bankruptcy moves forward, and I know that's even got its own complexities, we keep reading these wild tweets from Sam Bankman-Fried. Do you have any sense yet of, of the amount of damage done? When you pull back and look at this and think of the last year that crypto has had, this is being yeah. compared to Enron, to Lehman, but yeah. a lot of us are having trouble quantifying the damage. Maybe that's because we're right in the middle of it. I mean, I think it's hard to say. You know, One way to simply think about it is just the numerous billions that have been lost in the price of various coins. Yeah. But I think it is an ex- existential moment for the crypto industry specifically. It's like, look, like when Enron collapsed, I don't think anyone was like, oh, well, this is the end of energy, right? <laughs> and when Lehman collapsed, maybe, but I don't think there were many people like, oh, this is like the end of like banking. Right. I mean, there was maybe there was some view that like the nature of Wall Street was like fundamentally going to change and maybe mm-hmm. it even kind of did. Mm-hmm. But I think in this case, it's like, wait, is there like, is this the end of crypto itself? And I think that part of like the whole crypto story has been this idea. It's like, you know, it's an endless front run in a way. It's like everybody wants to get in before everyone else. It's like people wanted to get in before the institutions Mm -hmm. and so forth. And the institutions are going to look at this and say, SBF is someone we thought we knew and could trust. It was professional and had a great finance pedigree at Jane Street. And if we can't trust him, who is there? And so I think this is like an existential moment in a way that yeah. maybe some of those others even weren't. Well, so then are you surprised there has not been more carnage in you know in the big ones in yeah. Bitcoin, for yeah, instance? Yeah. It hasn't uh-huh. fallen out of bed. I, I am, and actually, a lot of these coins are still above where they were like in June. And yeah. I, this is a thing that many people in the industry are talking about. It's like, why aren't they falling more? It's kind of weird, and everyone's like. You know, with the pace of the news flow over the last two weeks, everyone is trying to scratch their head and sort of figure out, like, why aren't coins falling more? And my understanding is no one has any good answers. It kind of feels like there's very little liquidity on these markets right now. And there's not many people buying, but there's also not many people selling. Tell me more about SBF. I know when it it comes down to to just three letters, you got to be important. You had him several yeah. times on the podcast. Uh, on yeah. one in particular, I went back to listen again to the April 22nd episode when you sat down, in which he said this. There's a huge tidal wave of money trying to come into the space, is what I would say. Oh, I like that. Uh, just sort of, you know, gobs and gobs of it that that sort of been, has been desperately, huh. you know, sort of like trying to, 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 to like find its way in. Desperate gobs and gobs. Has yeah. this collapse change the way you listen to that statement now i mean no because in a way it sort of fits with like 
you know, like here's the thing that I keep going back to think about. It. It's like everybody sort of thought, uh, oh, he's SBF is a genius, and he went to MIT, and yeah. he was a quantitative trader at Jane Street, and maybe you know, the facts are true, but. What he describes in that clip is not that sophisticated. <clears throat> you have the gobs and gobs of money, and so you want to get in front of it, right? You want to be there before the gobs and gobs of money so that the gobs and gobs of money buy up the coins that you bought yesterday. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, like, does that sound like a trading strategy that, like, uh, a genius mathematician? No. Math and no, it sounds like a pretty crude trading strategy, and it's not even necessarily wrong. It's just not particularly like subtle or sophisticated, and so well. It also sounds misguided when everyone is right. losing billions of dollars now. Well, that's true. Because and in yeah, I mean, it's certainly not. There aren't gobs and gobs of money today. It's also not clear that there are even gobs and gobs of money by April. I mean, the market had peaked in November, and we had a yeah. pretty. But even by April, we had a pretty sharp sell-off. But, you know, what's interesting is, okay, so we published that at the end of April. Mm -hmm. Two days later, after that episode came out, they held uh, Crypto Bahamas, which was a conference that FTX put out in the Bahamas near their <laughs> offices. And he was on stage with Bill Clinton and Tony Blair. God. Where he was, they were wearing suits. Yeah. He was wearing T-shirts, shorts, and sandals. Right. And it was sort of this iconic moment. It's like, here's this guy. And just a week ago on a podcast, he didn't describe his company as a Ponzi scheme. He didn't even describe crypto as a Ponzi scheme per se, but he did describe a pretty big element of it in terms that could be like fairly likened to a Ponzi scheme. And then a week later, he's talking to two former heads of state, or <laughs> in the case of Tony Blair, former prime minister. And, you know, it's like, oh, this kind of a moment. But I do think like it has been one blow after another not long after that conversation we had the blow up of luna mm -hmm. three areas capital mm -hmm. celsius voyager um block and voyager on life support so it didn't take long before those uh, gobs and gobs of money yeah. uh, did not materialize he talked about the concept of yield farming i yes. learned about i never heard yep. that before this episode <laughs> maybe that says something about me but you know subscribe to odd lots you'll learn a lot um he described it as a sort of magic box. Here, yeah. Here's how he said it. It's a box and you take, can take a token, you can take Ethereum, you can put it in the box and you can take it out of the box. Like you put it into the box and you get like, you know, an IOU for, <laughs> for having put it in the box and then you can redeem that IOU back out for the token. Okay. So, so far what we've described is the world's dumbest ETF or ADR or something like that. Yeah. It's a, it doesn't do anything, but let you put things in it if you so chose. And then this protocol issues a token. We'll call it whatever X token and X token promises that anything cool that happens because of this box is going to ultimately be usable by, you know, governance vote of uh, holders okay. of the X token. Are we getting closer to where things went wrong here? Well, so I would say three things about that. Maybe four. There's a lot there that he said. So I'll yeah. say the first thing my thought is that at a minimum, that's very cynical. And my interpretation of SBF as like a sort of like what he was doing was that he did not – I never got the impression that he was like a big crypto believer. And if you listen to like – you know, you've huh. people who are into crypto are like really into it, right? They think it's going to change the it's world. It's religion, and, yeah. Yeah, religion or it's going to like change how corporations and governments operate. I never got that impression from SBF. I always got the impression that he saw a chance to make lots and lots of money. Hmm. And so when I listened to that, I was like, okay, here he's like – describing a pretty cynical 
characterization of like what crypto is right now, like a magic money box, but it doesn't matter because <laughs> being in the service of that, providing a market exchange for these boxes is like a very profitable business. But a cynical one because it didn't sound like someone who like wants to like really make the case for like the underlying activity that's been happening. It's also interesting that not once the sort of like poor quality of the books. So, you know, with the bankruptcy and we're learning, well, what did FTX and Alameda have as their assets? A lot of it was exactly what was described there, which is these tokens that they themselves controlled or they more or less basically. And through the magic of the box, we're able to inflate the value beyond like any sort of like reasonable pricing in the market. And yeah. so they're like, oh, we have billions of uh, dollars worth of assets on our books. Okay, that's good. But the only way we get there is via these tokens that we issued that were are priced nominally at billions in market cap, but realistically could never be sold into the market at anywhere near these levels. So I think that like there's quite a bit in there in that answer that helps sort of us uh, understand where we are today. Yeah, absolutely. And then, of course, the follow-on is uh, the reaction from Washington, yeah. what kind of regulation. I assume this accelerates the conversation, but do they know what they're doing at the SEC or the CFTC and preventing something like this from happening again? Yeah, it, it's a really good question. I mean, I think that <clears throat> I think there's two schools of thought here. So there's one is, uh, okay, we need to write, we need to come up with new regulation, yeah. which I guess is not that controversial. It's always how it is, right? People lose a lot of money, and uh, then the then the regulators come in. The flip side is that this happened on an offshore exchange outside of the jurisdiction of U.S. regulators, and the entities uh, that were sort of like we, you know. And crypto uh, entities that are in the U.S., uh, you know, haven't had the same fate. And B, like, it's a, li a little unclear, I guess you could say, why crypto deserves new regulations. We already have regulations, right? You're not allowed to steal people's money, violate terms of service. Right. If you are a broker, there are certain obligations you have. Like, there are a lot of laws that capture all of this. So I think there is another view out there that rather than rushing to write new regulations specifically for crypto, yeah. Enfor that enforce the like, laws. Well, why on the don't books? we enforce the laws that we already have? And you know, there is a widespread view that a lot of these tokens are in fact securities. Mm -hmm. um, so we have a securities regulator. It's called the SEC, yeah. and there's already things the SEC can do if it deems certain assets to be securities in terms of disclosure requirements and so forth. And so one view is that, well, let's just have the, uh, let's just divide these up. Maybe some of these tokens are commodities and should be traded more, uh, should be regulated more by the CFTC. Maybe some are securities traded by the SEC. Maybe uh, the brokerages like Coinbase should be like regulated like a, uh, you know, uh, a traditional broker, like yeah. a Schwab or something like that. And so I do think there's a view of like, well, let's just start getting more aggressive about putting these things in the categories that we already have laws for. Did you miss an opportunity to do your remote broadcast from the Bahamas? <laughs> it's funny, you know, uh, yeah, kind of. We were invited. Not, uh, I bet you were. Yeah, they were like, well, why don't you do a live? We didn't make it work. You know, we, uh, you know, we weren't going to, like, fly all the way to the Bahamas. And stuff just like wonder that. if but that's a did. warning sign when, when it's coming from the Bahamas, you know. Yeah, they're like, well, why don't you do an episode on stage? Or, and it didn't mm -hmm. happen. Um, there's a reason there's a lot of this that's offshore. And 
I do feel for a lot of you know people have lost a lot of money and had like their life savings completely ruined and, yeah. all, and but on the other hand like you know you're dealing with a uh, offshore entity outside the scope of like most established regulators who are in the business of like sort of like facilitating a de facto casino of sorts so hmm. the, uh, the there's some sort of uh, your uh, you know buyer beware here Spending time on a Friday with Joe Weisenthal on the fastest hour in politics. Big questions, by the way, uh, about what happens with the lawmakers who received millions of dollars from SBF campaign donations. In the case of Dick Durbin, the senator from Illinois, says he'll contribute the money uh, to charity, apparently, from SBF. But next will be the hearings. Recipients of those contributions say they are prepared to grill SBF about why his crypto exchange suddenly crashed. He donated tens of millions of dollars to politicians, second largest donor to the party this election for Democrats. So stand by. That'll be a show. Coming up, we'll get to Fed speak and the doom scroll this week. Boy, it was one after the other, leading many to wonder, do you have to damage the job market? Do you have to force unemployment to rise to stop inflation? And if the answer is yes, what's the point of the dual mandate? That's where we pick up with Joe. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. And they asked Clever Lang in Rocky Three for his prediction. What's your prediction for the fight? Prediction? Yes, prediction. <laughs> sort of like Jay Powell. While higher interest rates, slower growth, and softer labor market conditions will bring down inflation, they will also bring some pain to households and businesses. Yeah. These are the unfortunate costs of reducing inflation. And it's starting to look like the pain is going to yeah. be more real. Some of the comments we heard this week uh, from uh, Fed officials, you know, uh, the, the the Bullard comments about going to a seven-handle freaked out the market. Yeah. I was more taken by Kansas City Fed President Esther George looking at a labor market that is so tight. This is a quote. I don't know how you continue to bring this level of inflation down without having some real slowing and Maybe we even have contraction in the economy to get there. I've, I've asked about this before. The fact of the matter is you might have a dual mandate, but isn't that a false promise? You have to break the job market to beat inflation. You know, that is the, that is the, that is the widespread view of many economists, that history is pretty strict on this, that when you have extremely elevated inflation, you know, the, there is no – painless way to do it that you don't get this immaculate disinflation so to speak that yeah. you need to have uh layoffs and there need to be a meaningful number now the hope would be i would say the hope is this is a weird time we just had a, a once in a century pandemic and we have had major disruptions in the past uh we tend to it's a historical phenomenon we do have higher higher uh inflation after wartime typically 
is common because, again, you sort of similar story where major disruption to supply side capacity. You have all this investment that went into munitions and factories for the war, and then they're not there. You know, then uh, the the soldiers uh, come back, and then there isn't the productive capacity to supply them. There are counter examples, and so the hope would be, and so the question to some extent is, well, why do we have this inflation? Do we have mm-hmm. it because there was this huge disruption to society, in which case maybe a lot of inflation comes down to normalization, or do we have the inflation because the Fed kept rates too low too long, yeah. and the government spent too much money in checks, and so now we have to have the pan? I think we're huh. still kind of in that debate, and honestly- Well, it's like, funny. It depends what party you're in tends to determine uh, your answer to that question, right? I do think there is a big political element, but on the other hand, I will say, you know, look, there's a lot of like sort of like mainstream Democratic economists, uh-huh. Larry Summers, Jason Furman, among them, who are in that camp that oh, the Biden administration did too much or that uh, Jay Powell was too easy for too, too long. Yeah. But I will. I, I but these questions are always like really political. Absolutely. If you talk to a Democrat on Capitol Hill, and unfortunately we do this every day here sometimes, <laughs> uh, it's, you know, well, they'll tell you this is a global problem. This is a yeah. supply chain problem. Look at other countries. Why we're not alone in this. And Republicans say, you know, Joe Biden poured gasoline on the fire with the American Rescue Act. And you tend to think the truth might be somewhere in between. Yeah. And uh, there are a lot of, you know, I, I think economists don't know. There, I've seen all these studies like oh, it's 60% transitory and 40% embedded or whatever. Who knows? Who knows? How about uh, what we saw on the campaign trail? Sometimes you can learn uh, Mm -hmm. from the argument when when politicians are campaigning and certainly when voters actually go to the polls. Uh, If people blamed, if Americans blamed Democrats for this, wouldn't it have gone worse? Well, I will say this. And again, you know, what do I know about politics? I don't know anything. But I will say this, you know, we inflation is pretty bad, right? Mm-hmm. It's at its highest level in like four decades. And the Republican Party chose to run many candidates whose core position was like challenging the results of the 2020 election. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, that was like a number of Republicans like made that a big thing. It's like, man, yeah. maybe in retrospect, they should, because there is a big problem, right? Inflation is a real issue. And in a way, you know, I think a lot, I think the Republicans sort of assumed that the, they wouldn't have to like really try to like fight that point because it's so obvious everyone's going to punish the Democrats for inflation. So they ended up with like a lot of candidates that didn't really mm-hmm. talk about that. They like talked about like Trump and changing how people vote and stuff. So if like the that. messaging had been better, you're saying it, it could have been, been a different result. Yeah, it could have been. I mean, it's just weird. Did the like for as bad as inflation is, did can anyone point to say a Republican proposal or story about how to address it. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't think I heard any. You know, I heard a lot about investigating the White House. I heard yeah. a lot about Hunter Biden's laptop. And or you heard stuff. a lot of blame on inflation, but maybe I not a lot, lot of solutions. Blame, but yeah, you don't hear a lot of solutions. So I do wonder if like maybe uh, the re- Republicans were a little bit, um, in retrospect, naive about the sales job that yeah. they had to do and they should have done more. Are these Fed officials, George Bullard, doing the job by speaking and freaking yes. everyone out right now, or is yes. this a real indicator of how bad it's going to hurt next year? No, I mean, look, monetary policy is works through financial markets, and Paul has talked about this a lot. That it's not really the rate per se that matters; it's 
you know, if uh, if you raise rates and the stock market weakens and credit conditions tighten and so forth, then that constricts demand. And so, if you just talk about it, you're conducting monetary policy. Every one of these speeches is a conduct of monetary policy. And so, trying to like, we're in this interesting moment where it looks like the Fed is going to downshift from a series of 75 basis point hikes to 50 basis point hikes. And Waller had a speech this week, I think, where he yeah. liked it to take you off an airplane where it's like you go really hard in the beginning and then you get to like a cruising altitude mm-hmm. and then you like you ease up a little bit. It doesn't mean you're like easing, but the getting off the ground is like the really hard part that takes a lot of like fuel and stuff like that. And then you can glide a little bit. So, you know, we're in this sort of interesting moment, and there are signs that inflation is maybe cooling. You know, that last CPI report was encouraging. We've had oil prices, commodity prices coming down, some signs that food prices may be easing. Mm-hmm. But the, what the Fed does not want to see is the Fed does not want the market and investors to look at signs of easing, look at signs of downshift, and say, party time, we're going to go buy stocks, right? Because that's the worry. It was like, well, what are we accomplishing here? If everyone just is going to go buy stocks again and right. bid up financial markets and and speculate again, then we're just going to be right in the same boat that we were a year ago or six months ago. So the Fed is in this position now where it's like, okay, how can we acknowledge that there's some shift in the general trajectory mm-hmm. without letting things get out of hand and for everyone to say party time? And so I kind of think that's what <laughs> right. you're getting from some of these speakers, which I is like, it. yes, we're going to hike a little less fast than we have been, but don't use this as an excuse. No more spending you know, $50,000 on a Bitcoin, okay? like That's sort of like the message. So is Mr. T right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, they, they, you know what? I hope not. Like, here's the thing. It's like you have two camps. So you have the camp that say, okay, we need labor market pain um, in order to bring down inflation. And then you have another camp that say, these Fed uh, rate hikes are going to crush the labor market and make things worse, right? The dovish view. It's yeah. like, and I kind of hope that there is this middle ground where everyone turns out to be wrong, that the hawks are wrong, that we need higher unemployment in order to uh, uh, defeat inflation. That would be nice. And I hope the doves are wrong that the higher rates and the aggressive pace of hiking that we've seen these series of 75 basis point hikes crush the labor market. And so the dream scenario is one in which inflation does come down, uh, but also the rate hikes never really did much to the labor side. Mm-hmm. Uh, way too yeah. early to say that, but I don't think there's a, I don't think the, I think it's a non zero chance that that's the outcome here. Non zero chance. Yeah. I don't think it's zero. <laughs> From your lips to God's ears. I hope so. Let's get a beer next time I'm in New York. Anytime. Anytime. I love talking to you. I always enjoy it. The great Joe Weisenthal. His podcast is called Odd Lots. Ours is called Sound On. You should give it a try. You know, subscribe, share it with your friends. I can just keep thinking of him down there in the Bahamas, you know, hanging with SBF. It never happened. But I could use a little time in the Bahamas, don't you think? I mean, what a week. Not just the volatility on Wall Street we hear about from Charlie Pellet, the scary Fed speak, whether we finally got through the midterms. Republicans take the House. Nancy Pelosi retires as Speaker. Donald Trump announces his next presidential campaign. I could keep going. Just this week, Carrie Lake loses the Arizona governor's race to Katie Hobbs. Lawyers up for a fight. Adam Frisch concedes to Lauren Boebert. Did you hear that, by the way? Yeah. I'll take a margarita. And I'll meet you back here on Monday. Holiday week ahead. We'll have Rick and Jeannie on the fastest hour in politics. Thanks for spending time with us. This is Bloomberg. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.